Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome back. I got, I'd be my own floor manager. I've always wanted to do that kind of, that kind of job. Uh, and in the second half of this evening's entertainment, uh, I'm delighted to say that we've been joined by um, uh, the, the authors of, uh, of two books about genuinely legendary record labels. I don't know if, if they have legendary record labels anymore, and that's one of the subjects we're going to talk about, actually. Uh, but first... Uh, I think there's, there's a bit of a clichéd view that people often have that, that people who work for record companies who are almost, often disparagingly referred to as the suits, even though I haven't seen anybody in a suit in a record company in, in living memory, um, uh, are people who, who don't understand music and don't like music at all. And if anybody is under that misapprehension, I, I hope that the next half an hour or so will 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 change that view because some of the most passionate and most knowledgeable people about music that I've ever met are working for record companies. And uh, these two gentlemen have done their time working for record companies while also uh, writing about music and also working in a kind of PR and communications capacity around music. And uh, so... Would you please welcome the author of Becoming Electra, Mick Houghton, and the author of Motown, The Sound of Young America, Adam White. And there are these two splendid tomes, one considerably heavier than the other. I, I actually had to bring the car in, which I don't normally do, uh, just to carry Adam's book uh, with me, so they're both both very very worthwhile. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, thank you. Check that your mics are working. Apparently so. There thank you, David. Very good. good. So, just just before we we get into into the uh, into the stories of these these two these two labels, t- tell us 
how you go back with these labels, you know, both as a, as a consumer or when you first started taking an interest in them? Can you remember when you first bought a record from these labels? Adam, you first. Of course, uh, very clearly. Um, I heard Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas in the autumn of 1963 and it changed my life. I'd never heard a record anything like it to that point and I, I was deeply... Deep, that, that was it. That was Motown was it for me. So from that point on, everything I wanted and needed to know everything that came from that company, from that city, from that sound. And I, I'd heard nothing like it, whether or not, you know, I just simply hadn't. But it was, it was a, 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 you know, a moment of, of sort of uh, revelation. And that was it. I was hooked for life. Can you remember where you were when you heard it? Well, I think it could only have been in the evening uh, uh, listening to Radio Luxembourg because there were so few opportunities to listen to pop music back then. I mean, it seems so absurd by comparison to today, but um, you either had to listen to you know, something magnificent like two-way family favourites at lunchtime on a Sunday uh, where you could hear you know, occasional pop records or Radio Luxembourg in the evening. And, uh, and my guess is it would have been Radio Luxembourg because, of course, EMI, who had just become... Motown's licensee in the UK and Heatwave was the first record they put out, you know, paid to put shows on uh, on Radio Lux. I think, I think, did they do the Teen and Twenty Disc Club? I think they did. And was the presenter Jimmy Savile? I, oh. <laughs> I think he was. Well. <laughs> so, so you, you, you first heard Martha and the uh, Vandellas. Stage size 228. I, I was going to say, because it wasn't on the Motown label, was it? No, First it of all. No, no, it wasn't. And so, so Stateside was EMI's label for their kind of imported... That's correct, for their US repertoire, yes. Right. Um, and, but then, of course, you know, you, you want to find everything about, uh, be it an artist or a sound. You're, you're obsessed, so you need to know, where did this come from? Who are these people? What more are they doing? Um, and fortunately, Record Mirror, pop paper of the day... Um, had, uh, you know, an inkling lean towards R&B quite well, in particular a guy called Norman Jopling. Norman Jopling, who was uh, our guest on uh, Word in Your Ear not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Yep, I mean, he had a regular column, and he would write about R&B stars, and, of course, that was a must-read. But I was also lucky because I had an aunt who lived in America, uh-huh. and um, I said, there are these things called cashbox and billboard that I hear about or I read about. Can you find some copies and send me some? So she did, and, you know, to anyone who's interested in American music, opening the pages of Billboard and Cashbox at that point, that was it. You just, you know, you would go in down the rabbit hole. You, right. you, and, and, and behind the music, because, of course, you were reading about the, you know, the salesmen and the radio DJs and the, the business of music, and that was almost as captivating as the music. Because it's also a hugely important part of the appeal of all these things, which is lost now which was reading about them before you heard them, wasn't it? Seeing the names. (laughs) Yes. And thinking, I wonder what that could possibly sound like. Yeah. So you built up a very strong mental picture, didn't you? Uh, You you were allowed to do that. You weren't flooded with it. You you know, you you had to work at it. You know, you had to follow your enthusiasm and you had to search it out. And that (laughs) arguably binds you closer to it. Yeah. Um, than, it, than if it's there all the time, if it's ubiquitous. So, Mick, what about you with Electra? Where did you start with Electra? Can you remember? I, I can. Um, <laughs> and it was almost the opposite to Adam's story, which was I bought the first Incredible String Band album oh. uh, in sort of late in 1966. And it had been 
He's only been out a few months, but he's already been knocked down to 19 and 6. <laughs> in, in, in the, from what, 32 shillings? From 32 shillings, because he did actually get a UK release. Um, and this was in the co-op, and the co-op had a, had a, a record department. And, um, the co-op. And um, at that point, I was just sort of discovering folk music, and there was this album with, with these three beardy guys holding weird instruments... And um, I just bought it on the... It just looked interesting. You thought, three bearded guys, weird instruments, instruments, that's for me. Um, And how old were you, Mick? 16. 16. (laughs) So I got it home, and I thought it was awful. (laughs) It was just all these scratchy fiddles and um, people that couldn't really sing and... and, and, uh, But but if you bought an album, even even at half... Even at two-thirds of the normal price... You persevered. You persevered. <laughs> it's, it's true, though. It's a serious point. It, it was such an investment that, you, you know, you weren't going to give up on it. And also the loss of face. Because when you bought a record in those days, the first thing you did was show it off to your mates, who then goes, what's that? And you went, it's fantastic. Well, so the last thing in the world you could do is two weeks later go, do you know that record? No, there's two, actually, there's two albums I bought which my mates hated. One was... The incredible string band. The other one was the bird sweetheart of the rodeo, and, and anyway, for, for kind of the same reasons, really, because they just didn't sound like anything else anybody had heard at the time. Right, right. Um, but but I stuck with the incredible string band, and um, I had no real con- awareness that it was on Electra Records because I had no sense of <coughs> label you know, label identity meant absolutely nothing. Because at that point, I bought mostly singles, and they were always either on Decker or EMI or. Fontana yes. or Pie, and I, and I probably had I probably had more Pie and Fontana records than anything else because right. I liked the Kinks and the Searchers and the Mersey Beats and the Pretty Things, but it it kind of meant nothing really. Um, I'm trying to imagine uh, which uh, branch of the cooperative wholesale society <laughs> saw fit to order a, a copy of the the first Incredible String Band album. I suspect where, they weren't there for very long. No, I guess they. <laughs> <laughs> no, but where where was this? Oh, was, this was in Eltham in South East In Eltham, in, right? Okay. Um, but. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's part of the experience of buying records in the 60s was that you usually had to buy them off very kind of disapproving uninterested middle-aged ladies wearing, you know, um, plastic, you know, overalls and so forth who'd been on the perfume counter two weeks before. You know, it wasn't a hipster, was it? Oh, you no. Know? No, no. So the question I touched upon a bit uh, uh, in the intro is, you know, we grew up in an era when labels started to matter hugely, you know, that so... Electra eventually, you know, Motown, Atlantic, all these kind of people, all these kind of labels. And uh, I kind of would think that labels stopped mattering when things stopped having labels, if that's not too sophisticated a thought. <laughs> I mean, is, is, that, is that a fair point? Do you think labels matter anymore, Mick? Actually, I'm sure they do. I'm sure there's a lot of very small indie labels out there. Um... You know, and I think even I think they do. I mean, if you know, if you in terms of say catalogue, and I think particularly in America, say in terms of catalogue, you know, I think Light in the Attic still means something. You'll buy a record that's on Light in the Attic or Tompkins. No, I understand that with kind of real collectory. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, the average fifteen-year-old. Oh, 
I th- again, I think they probably do. Oh, really? But, but okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know what those labels are because I'm right. Because I'm not a 15 year old kid. Right. Now I, I just wondered, Adam. You know, they, I often think about this: is uh, why did labels have such a kind of profound effect on me? And then I thought, well, it's because you watched them going round as the record played. The visual image accompanying a Bob Dylan record was the orange CBS. Yeah, I think that's true. But I also think that look. If you have a passion for music, I mean, let's face it, even among music fans, the percentage who are as driven or as anoraki or as obsessed as at least I could speak for myself was, then you, um, you want to know everything. You care. You want to know every, every possible piece of information. So label is a sense of identity, which also becomes a part of yourself, especially if you're, you know, you, you're, you're listening to this um, as Mick did as a teenager, you know, you're struggling with who you are, what you want to be, what music means to you. So I think that that's, identity is part and uh, a parcel of the, of the process. Um, for a small percentage of music fans, millions of people enjoy a great deal of music and don't need to know Never or care them. No, whether sure. it was on Orange CBS or White yeah. CBS. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the... They're both these, uh, these labels, and Botan and Electra, both have very charismatic, driven founders guiding spirits. Let's talk about who these people were. we start here with Barry Gordy, who started Motown. Adam, tell us about Barry Gordy. Well, we Gordy. should start with him, because it's his birthday today. Oh, what is it? <laughs> A quick I'd round like of to happy say birthday, that, I'd like to say that we planned that. But, uh, <laughs> no, very nicely done. How old is he? He's 87. Okay. 87. He was born on, on Thanksgiving Day in 1929. Oh, cool. Right. Um, uh, a number of us have given thanks for that birth. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, uh, in Detroit, obviously, and um, he was one of uh, eight children, in fact. He had four sisters and three brothers. He was the second to last. A big family, essentially a middle-class family. Um, they were rather... So well, not a ghetto kid Not a ghetto kid, no. In fact, there's quite... A, in Barry's own autobiography, there's an interesting photo of a magazine article about the Gordy family uh, that was in a, a black magazine called Colour, surprisingly enough, um, and there's a picture of the entire family. They were, you know, reasonably well-off mm-hmm. by then, and this was 1949. Um, middle-class family living in Detroit. And Detroit was the kind of industrial heart of the United States, wasn't it? It was, it was. It was one of the the most prosperous cities and obviously a huge magnet to people from the south as the car industry developed, Um, not not least of all because uh, that car industry, one of the big car manufacturers, paid... Uh, equal um, salary, yeah. to whether you were black or white. I mean, yeah. it was it was a magnet. It yeah. was an exciting yeah. city, and of course, it was an amazing jazz, uh, music city. You know, jazz, country, uh, uh, every kind of music prospered there. Uh, in particular, around uh, the sort of Black Bottom area, Hastings Street, and so on. So there were these amazing clubs. Uh, in particular, the Flame Show Bar, which has an association with Berry, which was where he used to hang out. You know, you could see all the stars of the day, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Sarah Vaughan. Um, so was he a musician? He, he, did, he could play the piano. I don't think he could play it particularly well. He, so he was a musician up to a point, but he was more interested in writing songs. And actually, he started by opening a record shop, record store, uh, after he came out of the army, which was not successful. Uh, and he went to work for a couple of the car manufacturers. Um, and while he was at Ford, he developed a system in his head for writing songs in his head by allocating a number to a piece of music. And he would, quote, write songs uh, while he was on the production line at Lincoln. So Mercury. in the din of a 
also factory. He was he was writing songs in his head. Yep, and then he'd go home and he'd you know he'd write them out. Right. Um, so he he was drawn to music, but initially, first he was a boxer, and his first sort of. Uh, career uh, goal, if you like, was boxer. He was a relatively... Uh, uh, he was a featherweight. So a small guy. Small guy, um, but quite successful in an amateur capacity uh, until about 1953 or thereabouts, he, uh, he saw a poster um, somewhere in, uh, in a boxing ring and it was a poster of the bands coming up and playing in Detroit. Um, and he realised that all the boxers were 23 and looked 50 and all the musicians were 50 and looked 23 (laughs) and at that point he decided he was going to change his career so what was his first success as a songwriter or it was Reet Petit by Jackie Wilson right he was fortunate enough uh, through that association with the uh, Flame Show Bar to to get to know uh, Jackie Wilson's manager who said well if you've got some songs why don't you go down to my publishing company and let's have a look and Reet Petit was one of those. He hooked up with a guy called Billy Davis and they started to write together and wrote some very successful songs for Jackie. Right, right. And so was it always his view that he was going to start a record company? Uh, I don't think it was at the beginning. He was into music. He, um, he started to produce records. He and his second wife kind of had a, a service going where if you paid the money, they would record you or, or write songs with you. Um, so that was, that was a, you know, his way in. But it was quite difficult, um, not least because Detroit, for all that it was a, a great music city, you know, it was, a rel- it was off the beaten track as far as the record industry is concerned. It really, the big cities for, the, for that were New York and Chicago. Um, so, you know, he, he, I don't know that he wanted to start a record company at the beginning. I think it's generally accepted um, that he did that when he couldn't get paid for the songs he was writing for Jackie Wilson or couldn't get paid sufficiently. Uh, and he thought, well, the hell with this, I'm going to try and do it myself. So he was encouraged towards self-sufficiency by right. that experience. And self-sufficiency essentially became the hallmark of Motown. Right. And in that sense, you could argue that he was the first... Uh, you know, 360-degree record company because he became yeah. completely self-sufficient almost in every respect. So, very strong nose for business. Yes. Not a kind of, not pie in the sky, not airy-fairy at all. No, I think that came from his parents. Again, you know, his right. father, they owned uh, um, grocery stores. They were practical people. Right. But they, you know, they were, they were nuts and bolts business people to one degree or another. And so, um, he, he, you know, he knew what he wanted to do um, and he was very good at finding people around him who could help him achieve that. Right, right. First check he got, he kept, is that right? $3.19, that's right, uh, f- uh, from the uh, infamous uh, um, George Goldner for... Oh, uh, Redbird Records. No, no, it was, oh, pre- right. it was before that. It was okay. for Bad Girl by The Miracles, which was released on end, and that was, the, that was the check for writing and producing the record. Right. And he just thought the hell with it. I'm, you know, he kept it, framed it. But I'm, that, at that point, I'm going to start this I'm myself. I'm going to start my own. And he was encouraged to do so by Smokey yeah, Robinson. Right, right. So that's, that's Barry Gordy. Uh, that's his kind of, um, his backstory. Jack Holtzman of Electra, the man who started Electra. What kind of guy was he and what was his background? Well, his background, he described it as Park Avenue spoon-fed. Silver right. spoon fed, rather. Um, I mean, he's, you know, he was from a middle-class family. His father was a very successful doctor. But um, he didn't get on with his father at all. His, his father was very domineering. And I think, um, you know, I kind of thought Jack 
nothing Jack did was ever good enough for him. So Jack became very insular, and his escape was... One was movies. Actually, he ran away from home twice as well. That was his other escape. But um, he was really into movies. He was really into kind of Baroque classical music, which I think was the family collection, really. Um, but he was also, and he used this phrase himself, a bit of a nerd. He, he was really into, as, as you can, can see, see but, um, he was really into sort of, you know, building radio sets and amplifiers, and he would sort of rummage around um, all the kind of thrift stores in, the, in, in sort of lower Manhattan, where he'd pick up sort of Army and Navy surplus gizmos that, um, that you could buy in the post-war years. Um, and I think that, in a way, that was as much his passion as music. Um, when, he, when he left home, he went to a very liberal... After high school, he went to a very liberal arts college, St John's. Um, and I think it was there that, one, he met somebody who was really into folk music, so this guy introduced him to people like Led Belly and Josh White and Woody Guthrie. But um, the technological aspect to it was, I think, as much his as drive... was very strong. ...to, to say let's start a record label, which they did when they were at college. Um, so he was 19, and... Um, well, they, what year are we talking about? Oh, when this was in 1950. Right, OK. And so that's ahead of yeah. Motown. But the big, the big difference, I think, is that the... You know, I can't remember the exact year, but the LP had, had, had been invented just before that. And as a format, the LP was perfect for... I think for folk music and jazz, for genre music. So you had a lot of labels formed in 1950. You know, Riverside, Vanguard, I mean, jazz labels like Fantasy and Pacific Jazz. Um, so, the, you know, it wasn't at all singles orientated. So Jack's, Jack wanted to make you know, his first LP. And the first LP they made was actually by a guy called John Gruen, who was a composer, um, who was a who'd done a recital at the college and Jack approached him afterwards and said you know, could we record you um, but, but effectively what it was was sort of solo piano with a soprano singer interpreting Kafka and E.E. Cummings and, and all these terribly literal poems uh, and I only heard it once and what it reminded me of, for those of you who remember this was if you remember when Dudley Moore used to do spoofs his, his yeah. And beyond the fringe, it was just like that. Right. <laughs> and, um, um, so it, was, it wasn't a particularly auspicious start. I mean, Jack didn't particularly like it. I think he thought it was too avant-garde. Right. But, um, but at the same time, he was still incredibly professional about it. He, he, you know, it was recorded in a decent studio in New York, mastered with a top engineer at RCA Studios. Um, they pressed up 500, I think most of which he couldn't sell. Um, but he kind of got the bug, I guess, and, and then he left St. John's about a year later, moved back to New York, left home and, and got an apartment there. And funny enough, he, he also started up a record store. I was going to say, yes, they yeah. both had... Which so they both yeah. very close to the kind of retail yeah. side of the business. They thought it was really important. Well, Stax did this in Memphis, didn't they, as yeah, well? absolutely. Yes. Had, a, yeah, yeah. had a record shop. That's yeah. how you knew yeah. what to record... Yes, because you watch what was 
people. Well, I mean, in, in, Be- in Berry's case, you know, the record store that he started, the 3D record mart, was a failure because he only wanted to stock jazz records, which he loved, and his customers just wanted R&B and blues records. And he, he, he simply didn't want to or didn't know that that was the case and didn't, wasn't much interested in stocking them. As a result, it went out of business. Right, right. It's interesting that they both, they both kind of had, um, had something to prove to their parents, their fathers. Yes. Yeah. Is that the case? Yeah, definitely. That they, yeah. So, so Motown starts when? Uh, January 1959. Right. Technically with the release of a song called Come To Me by Marv Johnson which was the first record on Tamla. Now, remember, Tamla was the first label that the Berry created. Because he wanted to have a label called Tammy. Tammy. He was enamoured of Debbie Reynolds and Tammy and the Bachelor, a movie in which she starred. And he discovered that, unfortunately, there already was a Tammy record, so he changed it to Tamla. So he just made up Tamla? As you do, yes. It just seems that way. Right, right. Um, and he'd, he'd encountered Marv Johnson um, earlier, knew of him, and... Uh, he and his wife uh, recorded, it was recorded, I think, at United Sound, an independent studio in Detroit, um, and he put the record out in the beginning of 1959, and uh, it did rather well in and around Detroit, in the Midwest area, sufficiently so that United Artists Records came calling, to, who were interested in the record, picked up the master, and Barry signed Marv to... United Artists Records because he saw an opportunity right. um, to, to have So what was his hit. first real hit on the Motown label? Uh, it was would have been The Miracles. I mean, Way Over There by The Miracles was was a reasonable hit. The first major hit for, uh, for Tamla was Shop Around. Went to number two on the pop charts, number one on the R&B charts. That's the real, was the real breakthrough. He'd had money by Barrett Strong um, uh, some time before in 1959, the summer of 59, it's, again, it started to do well, but he couldn't keep up with demand, so he leased it to his sister's label, Anna, and right. it came out. Because that's an issue, isn't it, with independent labels generally, yeah. that they have one hit, and then that, that almost creates more problems yeah. than yes. it solves. Is Getting that... paid. Well, actually, in Electra's case... It... They didn't have a hit for 16 years. They must have had records that, that kind of covered the costs, is that? Well, I, I think because Jack was really astute. I mean, most of the records he put out covered their costs. I mean, the first record he considers, the first proper record he put out, was a Gene Ritchie album of Appalachian uh, folk song. Um, and because of where his shop was based in Greenwich Village, it, it became a bit of a magnet for... You know, for the folk world. So he met all these other folk, you know, folk performers. And the thing about folk folk artists in the fifties was they didn't really have contracts. So you could record for Electra and Folkways and Riverside and Tradition. Um, but for the first, I think for the first ten years, he was pretty much having to make back the cost of the record before he could move on and make yeah, another one. Yeah, make another one. Um, I mean, his breakthrough album was pro- probably came in about 57 when he when he put out an album of Jewish folk songs by by Theodore, Theodore Bikel I think we may have a picture of this <laughs> I think it was like, there you go yeah that's, that's one of the later ones that's right. about that's about the, the 10th album they made together right <laughs> that was a 10 exaggerate right 5th or 6th right so but there, there was there was a kind of market in those days for kind of comic odd well, that was Ethnic. interesting. Yeah, 
I mean, that was the other, the other, one of his other big sellers. I mean, the, the, the Theatre of Pickell Records worked because he was a bit of a name, because he was on Broadway. Yeah. He was in, you know, he was in films. He was in films like The African Queen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, by the 60s, Pickell was on Broadway, and he was Captain Van Trapp in The Sound of Music. And then um, he was the lead in Fiddle on the Roof. So right. he was a name, and, and, and Holtzman talks about how when he put the Bikel album out, it was the first album where the name appeared above the title. Oh, really? All, all the other albums have been folk songs of Appalachia. Oh, I see. Um, um, and the name That's has just been fairly irrelevant. But he realised that because Bikel was a name, he should put the it name... Was about, it was becoming big, about the artist big, rather yeah, than about yeah. the idea. Um, That's an interesting... And twist. they did sell well because... You know, all the immigrant communities in, in New York and all the, all the cities around America. Um, and, and I think it was Bikel's records that basically kept Electra afloat. Right, right. Through the 50s. So, um, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles were kind of... They were really important to Motown in the early days. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, apart from the encouragement that Smokey gave to Berry, they became very close friends. Um, and, and Smokey encouraged Berry to start the business, to start the label, and he was essentially their, you know, their, their prime act. Um, what was interesting about, about Shop Around, the first major hit that Motown had um, itself, was that was the record where Berry found it hard to get paid. You know, we were talking about how uh, you know, these, these small companies were dependent on independent distributors around the US to get paid, and often independent distributors would look for new labels starting up to have a hit, yes. thinking that, you know, they'd get one hit and that would be it. They'd never have to pay them. The, the move on to another move one. Move on to the one. They, they almost look for it. Um, and Barry realised that that was the, the, the jeopardy and, and, and I don't know that he almost went bust over shop around, but he couldn't collect his money. At that point, he decided to hire a guy called Barney Ailis, right. who was my primary source for the book. Yeah. Um, and essentially, he he became for Barry the man who got the records played and the company paid, and he was able to do this because Barney had already been in the business for some years. He'd worked for Capitol Records in Detroit, and he'd worked for Warner Brothers Records in in uh, the branch in in Detroit, and a local distributorship. So he knew the game. He knew the there DJs. He is there. there he is. Yep. He knew the game, he knew how it was played, he knew the DJs, he had, because he worked for Capital and Warners, he also had a lot of contacts across the country, both in radio and distributors. So he was in a very good position to help Berry, like I say, get the records played and mostly get, get the company paid. There he is in the, in the company of the Marvelettes, uh, Dick Clark in the middle you might recognise, yep. and the promotion guy for the... Um, distributor by a splendid name of Buzz Curtis. And that, that was the, when, when Barney took the uh, Marvelettes to Philadelphia to have them on American, American Bandstand, Bandstand on the yeah. show. He had to go to the high school principal of the, of the girls' uh, school in Inkster, Michigan to get permission to take them, drive them down to Philly from Detroit. They were still at high school? They were still at high school. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the six... And then Please Mr. Postman became... Motown's first number one pop record, and they got paid for it. Right. That, that was Barry's practical realisation, what he needed to know, what he needed to do. He ha hired the best people around him. What was interesting about him is that uh, he really didn't care about your background nor the colour of your skin if you could do the job. So there were two aspects of that that were important. Firstly, he hired, you know, in key jobs. Uh, Barney, obviously, as you can see, was white, 
uh, you know, his key lawyer, George Schiffer, Viennese emigre. Um, you had people like that. Uh, his accountants were white. He didn't care if you could do the job. And the, the other thing was he was willing to give responsibility to strong women, which became a hallmark of the company. But certainly at that stage, you know, getting paid from the 30 or so distributors um, around the U.S. was essential. Was that, and I think that was pretty much Electra's need and experience yeah, yeah. because they were independently distributed too. So, Marvel, let's please, Mr. Postman, number one. Yep. What, what, what year are we talking 90, about? It, it came out in, in uh, late fall of 61, beginning of 62. So end of 61, right. beginning so of 62. So at that stage, they're starting to get established. They start, we're not no, going to get it go away now. No. Yeah, I mean, it's still difficult. And remember... Yeah. And they were not an albums company, unlike Electra. Yeah. So they could, they didn't sell albums at that point. So the revenues weren't fantastic, but they were attracting talent. They were becoming a name, especially in and around Detroit. Right. right. So, uh, sorry, these are very rough kind of parallels. <laughs> but Tom Paxton was a huge breakthrough for Electra. Is that right to say? Well, I think yeah. I think I think um, anyway. Obviously, Electra was ideally placed for. You know, that great wave of singer-songwriters that came to Greenwich Village in the early 60s. And I guess most of the labels kind of signed one or two of them. But, um, yeah, Electra signed... The main ones, I guess, were Tom Paxton and Phil Oakes, who were very different. Very completely different. Um, and obviously Paxton actually had quite a lot of hits for other people. I don't think he had any for himself. But, um, you know, people recording songs like... Um, Last thing on my the mind. The last thing on my mind. I can remember Everybody a time going to college in the late sixties when it's compulsory to be able to play. Yeah. They wouldn't let you in unless you could play. The last thing on my mind. You know, so you go in rooms in hall, and there would be young men trying to impress long-haired young women with their version of "Last Thing on My Mind." And as you can see, Tom Paxton was a hugely physically attractive. <laughs> Specimen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad. I mean, I, I don't think people appreciate Tom Paxton at all and how good he it's was. It's because he looked like it's that. It's because he looked like that. It's absolutely. Um, had he looked like, you know, Jeff Buckley or yeah. Tim Buckley or whatever, yeah. he would have been fine. Or even Phil Oakes, who had to, you know, just had to scruff yeah, yeah, yeah. Greenwich Village. But he sold a lot of records and sold a lot of long-playing yeah. records, yeah. you know, and that is, as we say, you know, that's the kind of contrast between the two, isn't yeah. it, yeah, at yeah. this but, stage. But what's interesting about Holtzman is that he sold a, if he sold a lot of records by Tom Paxton, I mean, the, the breakthrough for him in, in terms of financial stability were all these oddball things he was doing. I mean, he did this series of sound effects records. He, he produced 13 sound effects records. And they cost nothing to make. But they wouldn't. And they sold... They, they just sold to all the kind of libraries, audio libraries. He yeah. made a fortune. I mean, the, it was the money he made from the sound effects records that then enabled him to set up Nonsuch, the Nonsuch label. Right. And the Nonsuch label, when he started that up, was a budget classical label. And again, he put 60 titles out in the first year, didn't pay anything because they were all kind of library recordings, and again, made a killing. And it was only through the sort of financial stability that that, that gave him that he was able to make that next step to, to you know, to, to record electric music right, right because up to then you know he, he's, he kind of started off recording folk music because it was cheap to do all right um 
But then, now, I wonder, I got this, this picture which is of a, of a, a billboard advertising yeah. a love album on Sunset Strip in, I don't know when this would be, late 60s, so early that's, 60s. that's 67, because that's, oh, okay. um, that's where it changes. Okay. Um, but the first billboard he, I mean, the first billboard he put up was for the first Doors album, which was January 67. Because yeah. I only met Jack Holtzman once through your good offices, and he said something to me that I still quote all the time. He said, I cannot believe that the record industry let go of its greatest marketing tool, which was the cover of the 12-inch album. And, of course, he was, he was the leader in this, wasn't he? Is that Absolutely. fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, one, one of the things... It's the other thing about all the records he put out on, through the 50s. Um, it's, you can't tell from this book. If you buy the original format of my book, it's a larger format, and all the covers are reproduced... And the cover art is fantastic. It's unbelievable. But that was his thing. He said that, because obviously all the records were stored in racks, and he made sure that all his records stood out by just giving them the most fantastic cover art. Um, and, um, yeah, he, that, was, that, so, was, that was his appetite. He didn't have an advertising budget. The records just looked great. They looked they they look jumped fantastic. jumped out at you. Yeah. And I think he, I can't remember who he's talking about in the book, whether it's Clear Light or somebody, some one of their bands that didn't do all that brilliantly. He said, we, we spent on the logo. Yeah. You know, we gave them a logo. That was the kind of, that was the policy. Yeah. You know? Well, because, I mean, Love, Love was the first logo. On the, I mean, the first Love album was the first full-colour sleeve that anybody had ever produced. He was a real innovator, Jack, you know. Um, I didn't realise that he was, the, I think he was the first person, this is back in the 50s, to produce samplers. Nobody did samplers, and he started doing samplers of, of what was on Electra. I mean, he did all kinds of things that, that were firsts. So, so Love had this logo, then The Doors had the logo, and when he signed Clear Light, he gave them a fantastic logo as well. But, but as you say, Clear Light, the Clear Light album didn't sell. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? If you get powerful logos like that, the logos are more distinctive than the look of the band. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that kind of hangs on, isn't it? You know, there's a related story in the in the album covers uh, thing. In contrast to Electra, and and the you know the art and the and, and, and the look of those things, Motown in the beginning really didn't care about the album covers. They were not particularly special. You know, tended to be just a picture of the artist. But this myth grew up later that they um, didn't want to put black faces on the album covers, but you know, for, for obvious reasons, I guess. And this was one of the. I think it was a myth that the Barney Ailis was keen to uh, puncture when when I spoke to him for the book because he said that was nonsense. It was simply that they Motown didn't care about the album covers. It wasn't as important to yeah. them. Uh, firstly, because you know, they weren't selling his albums in the same way that Electra was, but they simply didn't have the resources to focus on that. It wasn't until some years later they started to realise the power of a good album cover. But the myth is that, uh, and it is a myth, that, that Motown wouldn't put certain artists faces on the cover because they were black and he said that's absolutely absurd and he said if you go back into the 50s and you look at album covers of Nat King Cole or you know Johnny Mathis or uh, uh, James Brown you know all, all of those albums had covers of photos of those artists so it's just it's, it's, it's an absurdity that wasn't the case we just didn't have the resources yeah, he said yeah, yeah it's a particular but it was a particular skill of the Electra label so now let's talk about the, the artists here and I'm sorry this is just a a useful way of rounding up a load of Motown artists. When's this pitch taken? 1965, March. This is Heathrow, is it? Or something? Uh, yeah, no, I think it's more like... 
it might have been Heathrow, actually. Oh, no, it, it, it was either Heathrow or it would have been EMI. No, you might be right with Heathrow. I mean, they'd obviously just landed their BOAC, uh, now British Airways, oh, yes. gave them those, um, <laughs> you know, those little uh, b- uh, travel bags. So you've got it, Supreme, Smokey Robinson, the Miracle, Martin and Val- Dallas and the kind of backing band. Yeah, that post is slightly on. misleading. I mean, there's no Stevie. I mean, the tour comprised Supremes, Miracles, Martha and, and the Vandellas, Earl Van Dyke, Sextet and Stevie Wonder. Um, so I'm not quite sure why Stevie wouldn't have been on that because right. at the time they would have known. Um, but, but anyway, he, he, uh, but regardless, he of was that, a kind of he was a sort of it was a volume deal, wasn't it? In those days, you know, that that was very Gordy's approach, wasn't it? Well, in the mid sixties, these are all my people. Yes, you know, if you like one, you'll like another one. Absolutely, and, and they put them together into a big. And this goes back review. to the point of self-sufficiency. You know, he signed those artists, he signed them for management as well as for recording. You know, you can get into issues of conflict of interest, but he had the whole package. He signed them, you know, if they wrote songs, um, he published the songs themselves. They managed, they booked the artists early on. I mean, they were entirely self-sufficient uh, uh, with the exception of depending on distributors around the country. It was an entirely self-sufficient company. So, yes, you got the package, and it worked. It worked first in the U.S. in 1962 when they put a package tour of their artists together, um, and then it, it carried on through years, and then they brought it to Britain in '65. Now, that this kind of... Uh, relationship inevitably comes under strain, doesn't it? When people start doing well, yes. Is that what happened with Motown? I mean, because first thing it always struck me is that the Supremes were clearly more interesting to him than the other artists on the label. Is that true to say? I think it's true to say. I think he saw. I mean, I think you know, the thing with Diana Ross is well known, etc. But I think he saw. No, tell us again. <laughs> I think he saw in Diana Ross and the Supremes, but particularly her, a drive and an ambition and a willingness to work at whatever cost to succeed. And, and that mirrored his own image for the company and for the artists he had. So he hooked onto the Supremes as the embodiment of every ambition he had to, to start you know, this little company in Detroit and go all the way into show business. Um, and they were the vehicle. And they were the vehicle because... Uh, aside from, you know, looking great and sounding great with those records, particularly when Holland Dozier Holland got their grips on them, he realised the, the, the power of the, of the image, and in particular on television. And I think the, the, the comparable moment to the Beatles on Ed Sullivan is the Supremes on Ed Sullivan in, in December 1964, when suddenly America could see these three great-looking girls singing a great song. And, you know, this was a show that reached on average 30 to 40 million people it reached into America's living rooms and Gordy realised that was the platform that he needed to aspire to and the Supremes were his way of doing it um, I was particularly struck one time when Mary Wilson told me that she was playing the Supremes were playing a show in, uh, in Florida one time and a white woman fan came up to her after the show and said no, I think I love the Supremes. I love you. You're great. Whenever you're on television, I let my family watch you. And you know, it's an extraordinary thing to, to hear someone say, but it was a measure of, of Gordy's recognition of the power of television and the platform that Sullivan gave him, and, and eventually started putting all of his acts onto. onto was this Sullivan. around about this time that it starts using the slogan, "The Sound of Young America"? That came a little bit later in, oh, right. in, in '65. 
later in So it's quite interesting that he wanted to brand them as American. Yes, absolutely. He wasn't, in, you know, he started out as a, as a, you know, the records were R&B hits, but he wasn't interested in, in black music yeah, per yeah. se. That was his talent base, but he was, he was interested in music for, you know, for everyone, he says. It was, it was a pop music company. But were, were there were the tensions and jealousies between the acts? No, I don't think at the beginning that was the case. Um, I, it, it, you know, it was small. It was uh, I, the cliché is a family, but they really did grow up together. You know, they were in this little two-story house in in Detroit that gradually they expanded into other buildings, but it was a very small group of people. And they worked together and they played together. You know, they go on picnics together. They had parties. It, it was a genuinely, you know, family atmosphere, and that changed only really when. Mary Wells broke through when, when uh, encouraged by her then husband, she, uh, they, they, he solicited other offers because Mary was about to turn 21 and, and Herman Griffin, her husband, saw an opportunity to get a better deal from another record company or perhaps get a better deal from Barry. But in the end, uh, Mary left Motown at the, the peak of her success as My Guy was a huge record. And that was the first time anyone had significantly And was left. never heard from again, really. Pretty much not, that's right. Which must have displeased Barry Craig. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes. you point this out to the other act. Yes. Now, the, the Doors, Mick, strikes me, looking from the outside, huge breakthrough uh, for, for, for Electra. You know... Did he, did he look at them and think, oh, that's a rock sensation? Or, 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 you know, that's how we look at them in retrospect. Did he look at them in that, in that way, I, I coming think he, along? I, I think he did, but he, what he says is that he didn't get it at first. He, 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 he kind of saw them, kind of went away and thought, something about them, and didn't, couldn't put his finger on it. Um, but um, in actual fact, I think he, he saw love as his real breakthrough act. Uh, and, and in a way they were, because Love, Love gave Electra its first ever hit single with, um, with My Little Red Book. Um, and then they had a, another hit with Seven and Seven Years. Um, but I think the problem with Love... I mean, one of the things with Jack was that whatever, however important the music was, he kind of had to like the people as right. well. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, Electra was a very small-scale operation... I mean, for the first 10 years, I mean, Holtzman did just about everything himself. And there were only two or three other people in, who, who were part of Electra. But it was really important to him to like the artists. Did so he like the doors? He liked the doors. Really? He, I think he liked the doors. He was, a, he, was, he was a bit of a snob in a way, Jack. He liked smart people. Right. Um, so he liked the doors. It's interesting. He, he liked Paxton. He, he really liked Judy Collins. He hated Fred Neal. Couldn't get... Couldn't get his head round. He didn't particularly like Phil Oaks, and and those people only lasted two or three albums. Right. Um, but um, but I think the thing with the Doors was he did really. He thought they were really smart people, and that was important. But they could be difficult. But they could be difficult. But that kind of actually, I was going to say it came later, but that actually came pretty much near the beginning because there's stories about Morrison smashing up the studio when they were recording the first album. But um, what did he? He did. He, well, he, he, Why? Because I think he might have had a few too many. Oh, right. And, okay. um, and, and just sprayed fire extinguishers all around the studio. But, right, uh, right. Um, but I think the other thing with The Doors is that I don't think Jack expected them to be as successful as they were quite so quickly because it was completely 
out of his experience. I mean, they, they, I mean, Lubbock had a couple of minor hits, but when when Light My Fire took off, it was you know, he was he was selling millions. I mean, he was selling not just singles but albums. Yeah, and and you know that was that never happened in, in yeah. Electra's history. Well, Light My Fire is a, is a phenomenon, isn't it? Really, it's kind yeah. of bigger than the Doors, yeah. isn't it? I think, yeah. And also, well, it, certainly, it certainly was at that point. It's also written by Robbie Krieger, isn't yeah, that right? Yeah. Who, who, I don't know if it's quoted in your book, but I read this quote saying the first song he wrote was Light My Fire and it's been downhill ever since. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's probably Robbie, actually. Robbie would have because, said that. Because, you know, that, is, that was an enormous hit, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. covered by loads and loads yeah. of people. Yeah. So, you know, it was a huge phenomenon, which, uh, you know, must have but, made... You know, but this is one of the interesting things, if you, if you look at... Motown and Electra, in a way they're kind of in reverse. I mean, you know, Electra was an albums label that finally breaks through in 67 with The Doors. Whereas... Um, into singles. Yeah, yeah, into singles. And to some extent, um, you know, the, I think the success of The Doors is... It, it, I think the hardest thing for any label to deal with is success. Yeah. And I think... Um, because overnight, or within, within a year... Within a year, I think Holtzman had to realise that purely, almost entirely down to the amount of records the Doors were selling, was that he couldn't remain independent anymore. You know, he had to, and largely through distribution. Mm -hmm. Distribution was the problem. Yeah. You know, which is why within a couple of years he became part of, you know, the Warner Music. Yeah. Warner Music and... um, which he didn't really want to do, but... Um, but that's what success makes that's what do. Success There's an interesting uh, point, too. Um, Jack was apparently willing to put up with artists, you know, who were their own people and perhaps difficult or, or provocative. Barry would really have none of it. Yeah. And his first star, Marv Johnson, he, I, I think, kind of developed an ego to the point where Barry was just had enough of it. They fell out, and after Marv's run of success at United Artists Records, he never really came back, just... Just for a brief moment, and at the end of the '60s, he was he was a sales rep for Motown, right. and so you know Barry only wanted people who would be pliant, who would, who would do like, it his who way. would play the game, and yeah. that was the price. Yeah. If you wanted to be successful, this is the way I do it. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the the role of the UK in both in the success of both these labels. This is the Supremes on Ready Steady Go. What, when are we talking about here? Uh, that's I would say 65, 66. A little hard to tell, right? But roughly uh, later in, in after the tour came through. So the res- the response that they had here was, was was that an important thing to them? Motown acts. Well, it was the response was important because they'd never, you know, the the, the reverence and respect that they were paid uh, when they came to Britain was unusual. Um, again, Mary Wilson said. Uh, to me that when when she came to Britain she was treated like royalty when she went home to America she was te- treated like a negro um, I mean that was the reality of it so they love coming here um, for, for that reason um, and so they often did uh, but the fact was the tour as you know was not a success it was it was not a commercial success outside London they were they were very poorly attended I went to show in my hometown of Bristol and there were probably 20 people in the room, you know. And if you think about it, you're seeing Stevie Wonder, Miracles, Supremes, Martha and the Mandela's. The 20, you know, it's 
pretty strange. Did they give it the full whack? Yes, they did. They did. They absolutely, they had to put on a show. Yeah. Um, so it, that tour was not a success. And in Not Very Back, he really wondered if they, you know, they miscalculated. But they kept at it. They realised there was a, a market. EMI kept at it, handling Motown. They persevered and eventually, pretty much in 66, it, they began to click. Stevie Wonder's Uptight was a success, yeah, yeah. his first hit. He came over, you know, they, they, they started to motor at that point. And also they had the kind of patronage of people like the Beatles. Yes. Which was kind of helped, didn't uh, it? Uh, more than helped. You know, it encouraged them in, in all sorts of ways. It was also patronage as in, there are three Motown songs on the Beatles' second album. <laughs> That's patronage as in performance royalties yeah, from yeah. the United States and the world going directly into yeah. Motown's publishing yeah. wing. Yeah. So... Um, Talking of other English, UK. <laughs> this is this is a wonderful record. That, that's not the original cover, is it? Make a, uh, no, there was a different cover. Different cover that in was Britain. The American cover. I, I think, think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the third album? I think it's the third album. Yes. This yes. was a top five album. No, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, Electra in the UK. Um, I mean, the Incredible String Band was the only UK signing for Electra that actually sold any records. But you're right, this was a top five record. Top five record. And at that, at that point, The Doors had released three albums and still hadn't had a hit album here and still hadn't had a hit single. I mean, The Doors were never huge in Britain at the time. Right, no, no. I think they're one of those groups that have become huge over time. Later on, yeah. Whereas in this country, if people, if you, if you, if you ask people about Electra in the late 60s, they would have mentioned Love... Tim Buckley, David Ackles, yeah, yeah. and the Incredible String Band. I mean, the Doors were... I mean, it took, as I say, it took them six singles, and then they had a hit with Hello, I Love You. Well, and it's still a weird experience for anybody who blunders into their co-op and finds a copy <laughs> of the third Incredible String Band record. It's a wonderful record, but, but it's yeah. eccentric to the... You know, to the end, I mean, there's the, no other the label end, that would have no, signed them, is, no. that, is that? No, you know, and to be honest with you, I think signing Incredible String Band was was more down to Joe Boyd than Jack. Yes. Because Joe Boyd... I mean, Jack employed Joe to run the UK office in 19... Basically all through 1966. But Joe... In the end, I mean, I don't think the two of them ever really got on because they were probably too similar. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jack didn't really like the fact that he he didn't have any control over Joe and what he was signing. Um, I mean, one of the great stories about... Joe didn't want to be controlled. Joe didn't want to be controlled. (laughs) And, And Joe didn't want to run didn't want to run the office basically he wanted to sign groups and um i mean one great story is that he he talked jack into signing the incredible string band um but the harder what was harder was to get him to pay another 50 quid so that he could get them instead of transatlantic he had to up the deal that transatlantic records were 50 pounds 50 pounds and he got the incredible string you know you're in a serious bidding war when it's transatlantic the other side but come, you know, come back. Sorry, come back to the sleeves. You know, when you look at the sleeve for that album, but in particular the one before, the Five Thousand Spirits or the Layers of the yeah. Onion. I mean, that was, you know, that was the folk equivalent of Sergeant Pepper. That yeah. Record. I mean, it, it was. and you know, it was designed by the fool who, who designed the, the Apple Apple Building. Um, so a lot of a lot of what was important about Electra, as I said, like with this. I mean, the sleeves. I think. Hugely, hugely important. important. You couldn't. It was part of the experience yeah. of listening to it. Was sitting I mean, there with that thing you, on. You, you couldn't get another album that, or, or that one as well, which just summed up these people are 
hippies. Yeah, this absolutely. is this is this is, this is this is weird music for hippies. Both uh, these... can I, just before we get to that, of course, there's an experience that binds us to the incredible string band at Motown. I worked in a record shop in Bristol. There is a link between the incredible string band and well, Tenement. At least in I'm my thrilled. small world, there is because I worked in a record shop in Bristol, um, and I persuaded the boss to for us to set up a mail-order service to carry all the Motown releases. So we, we stocked everything, singles, EPs, albums, and so on, and we developed a network of customers around the UK. But um, the, the shop was in, in a part of Clifton, fairly near Clifton College, and all the kids from Clifton College, or many of them, would come and buy their records from the Clifton record shop, and they would buy goddamn incredible string band albums, <laughs> and I wanted them to buy four tops <laughs> records. Uh, no, 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 no. Come on, Bristol was going to... Go for the incredible string band. Yeah. <laughs> now, both these uh, uh, both these labels had their kind of, um, you know, their experimental wings. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's fair to say. Don't you love the Star Wars uh, um, lettering before <laughs> well, it's, it's time? This is the only visual I could get to kind of sum this up. But no, there, there was one. a kind of Motown spoken word the, label, there, is There that was best? for a minute and a half. And I, and I think it was a result of Barry feeling pressure. You're, you're talking about 1970, so the, the Black Power movement was in full stride, um, and there was a great deal of pressure on him, as by now a very successful black capitalist, to support the cause. Yeah. And he wasn't much interested in it. He had no political interest whatsoever. He was a businessman and a music man. Um, you know, he, he certainly played his part and Motown early on released a couple of albums by Martin Luther King. But he wasn't interested in being a political label. But at the point in 1970, he clearly felt under pressure, um, not least by a guy called Ewart Abner, who had joined Motown, previously been at VJ Records in Chicago, who was fairly militant. And Abner encouraged Barry to start Black Forum as an outlet for, for some of the spoken word and occasional music albums. Um, one of the albums not shown there is uh, Black um, Fighting Men in Vietnam. This, yes. of course, was, again, you know, a hugely divisive political issue. Um, so they put out a handful of records and they couldn't get arrested with them. Right. Barney said, you know, I couldn't sell them. Surprise, surprise, most of the distributors around the US, with the possible exception of one in Chicago, were white. They weren't much interested in marketing mm. Black mm. Forum records in, mm. through their distributorships. Yeah. So it didn't sell. And you couldn't. But really they get tried it. that stuff. They, was... they tried. And they're quite interesting. I mean, the Langston Hughes record, even though it was released in 1970, actually was recorded in 1963. You know, a Stokely Carmichael. Uh, album is, is pretty interesting. Um, they had a singer called Elaine Brown, who was also a member of the Black Panthers. So they did try. It just didn't work. And his heart wasn't in it. Right, right. I mean, one, of, one of the bizarre albums that Jack put out in 69, I think, was um, The Voices of East Harlem, right on oh, B3. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he also signed Swamp Dog. No, right. Um, uh, but... Um, I mean, understandably, in a way, he couldn't. You know, they couldn't sell those records because electric. Because dis- their network, their didn't, network just didn't, didn't, didn't work for them. Tell us about this one, the Zodiac, Zodiac Cosmic Sounds, which almost seems like well, a kind of archetypal electro record. It kind of is. I mean, one look at that cover. I mean, yeah, you well, know. quite. Uh, you didn't, didn't need to have a record inside it, did you? No, really? you really didn't. Um, I think that was the exper- again the experimental side of Jack. I mean, you can look at that record now, and it was the first use of a Moog on a rock record. Oh right. Um, and um, I mean, interestingly, Jack introduced Paul Bieber and Bernie Krause because he he kind of knew them both, um, and he knew Bernie Krause because he'd been the banjo player with the Weavers beforehand. 
But, um, but this was Jack's idea. Jack had this idea just to, to, to make an album um, you know, where each track was, was basically your star sign. Right. Because as he puts it, in those days, you know, after you said hello to people, the next question was, what's your star sign? And what's your sign? So he knew he was, he basically, he knew he was onto a winner. Because yeah. but, but, I mean, some of his kind of radical things turned out to be big, big hits. I mean, like you say, well, the Scott Joplin piano rags, yeah. that was on Nonsuch, wasn't yeah. it? That was put out, it was a huge million-seller, wasn't it? It certainly appeared uh, yeah, to be. Yeah, I mean, largely because of the sting, because the music yeah, yeah. in the sting. But, yeah. I mean, Jack was somebody that had, he had really good instincts. And I think the other thing about Jack was, and it, sure it was the same with, with Motown, was that he trusted the instincts of the people that worked for him, um, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. I mean, he trusted Danny Fields, which, which is why he signed the MC5 and the Stooges. Because um, he didn't like that himself. Well, really. he... I think no, he, he didn't. I think he, did, he couldn't... He, he, he wanted to like it. He yes. Didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, as it turned out, I mean, they... It's the world wanted to like it, you know, but nobody liked the Stooges at the time. <laughs> but um, you know, but again, he, he put, as he puts it in his in the book, he says it was like buying a Picasso painting, and then twenty years later, it's worth a fortune. Yeah. I, I don't think the Stooges ever worth a fortune, but in, in critical terms, incredible terms, they're worth a fortune. You know. So let's that, just that talk point about, about the trusting right. instincts is, a, is an important one, and I think both men had in common, and that is that Barry trusted the people who he, he handed key jobs to, and as he got more involved with the business, he was willing. He trusted the instincts of Holland, Doja Holland, and Smokey right. and Norman Whitfield on the creative side, as he was drawn more into the business side. His only weakness was he did kind of he came to like consultants when they would come in, or as Barney said, you know, the guy would come in. Um, uh, with a watch and tell him what time it was. It was, right. it was, you know, a bit of a tendency to to like what a, a consultant would, uh, the bullshit that would come. Yeah. But he did, but he did trust his people. Let's talk about how these these two labels kind of changed, you know, as a consequence of success. Now, the Jackson Five, huge in the in the early seventies. Yes, yeah, yeah the, the, which he had very generation. little musical input into. Is that fair to say? Was that done kind of? Well, he didn't want to sign them in the first place because he didn't, he didn't really want a, a, you know, a child, a kid's band right. on, on the label. He'd had enough difficulty with Little Stevie Wonder back in 1961, 62, <laughs> 63. And, you know, but, but just from a practical point of view, because, you know, if you've got a teenager, a child on your roster, he's got to be, go to school, he's got to have uh, people around him to support. I mean, there's just nuts and bolts things that come with kids. So he wasn't interested until he was shown the video... Uh, which you can see on YouTube of Michael and, and the, the brothers singing, and he realised they were an extraordinary force. Um, but he essentially handed the responsibility for making the music over to a guy called Bobby Taylor, who'd actually found them or encouraged Motown to sign them in the first place. But he, he insisted that they be presented to the world via Diana Ross. Well, that's a, a, evidence of two things. Firstly, you know, his media savvy. He understood that, you know, if you hitch a bunch of kids to an established star's um, star power, that's going to get you media attention. So when they were introduced at a nightclub in Los Angeles, it was Diana who introduced them. And guess what? The media showed up in droves. Right. So again, it was the savvy 
side of Berry, realizing that to, to get somewhere, you you know, you had to have a platform. Yeah. Um, and he did in California. He moved. Yeah, I was going to say because that's what's happening around about that time. That's what's moving to California. Yeah. He bought a house in LA in 1968 because he wanted to get into the television business. He understood. He'd gone through this thing of hit records to television with Ed Sullivan, then on to. Uh, you know, Copa and the sort of palaces of American showbiz, all of the nightclubs. So his act, you see the arc of, a, of an artist's career going through that rather traditional but nonetheless successful show business angle and television and movies was his ultimate goal. And and so uh, they, mo- they moved the Jacksons out. And that's when you get to, Lady Sings the Blues yep, and all, all this. Yeah, all of that. So, but he went because obviously television and music on television was becoming but, more popular and yeah. powerful at that point yeah, in, yeah. in the so, so that was a big cha- transformation uh, with, with Motown. And they, uh, sorry, this is, this is a Queen single on... It uh, is, it is. ...on Electra. Explain now, yourself. No, I'm perfectly agnostic about Queen, but, you know, they, they, they make some people's hackles rise. Did Jack Holtzman like Queen? He really did. Um... I mean, it's kind of interesting. When you get to the 70s, you know, Jack's become part of the Warner Group. And one of the things that drove him on was that there he was, you know, Atlantic run by Armit Erdogan, Warner's run by Joe Smith. And I think for Jack, it was like, I'm, I'm now, you know, one of with, with the big guys. You know, I'm, I'm now... Um, he was working with people he admired, but he was also really competitive. And he knew that once he became part of the Warner Group, um, he had to sign... Big acts. Big acts. And it, it was actually the most successful period for Electric because he signed Bread, he signed uh, Harry Chapin, who was big in America, Carly Simon, Judy Collins was having massive records in the 70s. Um, and, you know, there was a memo he sent round saying, I was just seeing the future of rock and roll, and it is a group called Queen. <laughs> and... Um, and um, I think similar to my experience when I was when I was working for Sire Records, when Seymour Stein told me he'd signed some dreadful singer called Madonna, you know, it, it was kind of like, sorry, you signed Talking Heads and Ramones and The Undertones, now you've signed Madonna, and, that, and, and now you spoiled everything. And now you spoiled everything. Just, <laughs> and Jack did the same. He had The Doors and Love and Queen. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. Um, But again, it, it, it comes back to being smart and. Um, um, he was but they've di- kind of got to be. It is that point that if you're if you're going up a level in the business, you kind of have to change yeah. what you do. And, and, and funny enough, again, one of the things he said about the re- one of the other reasons he signed Queen was is because they were smart people. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. He once told me he could see all these parallels between Queen and the Doors, and <laughs> I could never quite see. Singers both dead. Singers both dead. Yeah. So. I, that, t- talking of. Uh, um, I, just, I picked two cases here, one from Motown and one from Electra, of people who seem to particularly ill-fated. Is that fair to say? These are the Temptations. They had a pretty high attrition rate in the Temptations. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. In, in, in the first, they managed to get through the first sort of seven or eight years reasonably uh, well together until 
until David Rotham was given the heave-ho in 68 and they brought in Dennis Edwards. But um, I guess so. You know, they're, they're under intense pressure, um, egos started to come into the act, especially Ruffin. You know, Ruffin wanted a separate dressing room, all of the, the stuff that we've heard over the years with, with stars. So the, the, the pressure of ego and the pressure of success makes it very hard, even on young men who've grown up together and worked together as much as they have. So I guess the, the attrition rate tended to come later because... You know, David Ruffin left in 68, Eddie in 71, Eddie Kendrick in 71, and, and then, you know, a few more members. But I'm not sure that that, that was particularly relevant. Um, and they made some pretty extraordinary, wonderful records oh, regardless, absolutely. if you think about it, from yeah, beginning yeah. to end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, interesting, you see, there, there they are on television. That's a TV set, yeah, yeah, very yeah. understood, of the magnificent rope. Fake Roman pillars in the background. They're looking a bit fed up, actually. Yes. They're having to do I, I think, a run-through you know, for the yeah, 50th yeah, time. Exactly. You, you can't but blame they, them. they had a very successful TV special, network TV special, yeah. you know. Well, uh, as, did, as did almost all of uh, all of Barry's acts, with the exception of, of Marvin, you know, who was always a bit difficult. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, actually, it's worth coming back to ego in a minute. But Talking of a bit difficult... <laughs> Tim Buckley. Tim Buckley. Tim Buckley could have had the world. Is that fair to say? Yeah, he could have done. Yes, yes. But, you know, he, he, I think Tim Buckley started to sort of undermine that pretty, pretty quickly. Um, you know, I think by the third album he made for Electra, which, which I think is his best album, Happy Sad, he, you know, he completely moved away from anything that was going to have any kind of commercial possibilities whatsoever and I think Jack did sign him because he thought that you know he'd found a, a singer-songwriter and obviously Tim Buckley didn't come out of Greenwich Village but mm. he fitted that scene who he thought had the looks and girls loved him and, and he thought he, he thought he was going to be a huge star but he had a commercial death wish didn't he definitely really? yeah he just just couldn't face it could he no I think um I don't think so much that he had a commercial death, death wish per se, but I think I think he, it was just the music he wanted to. Like it's, I suppose it's the same thing. The music he wanted to make just had no commercial uh, possibilities whatsoever. <laughs> <You know. laughs> okay. You know, but you know, but you know, then to go from Happy Sad to um, Lorca, the album Lorca, which yeah. is which is the most extraordinary album. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. When I interviewed Jack for the book five years ago. Um, he he didn't remember Lorca at all, and he just kind of said, oh, "You know, next time we speak, I'm going to go away and listen to that album." And he was desperately trying to find something positive to say, <laughs> but he couldn't. Um, nice cover. Nice cover. Actually, it wasn't a particularly nice cover. Actually, <laughs> now I asked you both to choose a favourite record from your label that you think people might not know or might be underrated in some way. Adam, you've chosen this, Valerie Simpson Exposed. Yes, extraordinary piece of work. I mean, look, she was a, a remarkable songwriter with husband Nick Ashford. Um, you know, the, the source of all those duets with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell and many other wonderful songs. And then she made this album in 1971 um, that came out. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it, it just has an extraordinary power to it. It reflects her gospel background, um, the power of the songs, the, the, the lyrics... Um, she does an extraordinary version of We Can Work It Out. Um, it, it's just... It's it just... Extra, the, I hear, hear in that the same intensity and visceral 
electricity there was in, in Heatwave. And it wasn't a success, but it was interesting for one other reason. Um, it came out on, uh, in, in, in May of 1971. One, it was the record released next to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Marvin gets all the credit for putting the names of the musicians yeah. on What's Going On. The names of the Motown musicians were also on that album at exactly the same time. So you saw that recognition of the people behind her, including a magnificent arranger by the name of Paul Reiser, who worked with Ashford and Simpson and many of their productions. And got a huge lead review in Rolling Stone it, it, when it came out. Though, and the New York which Times. Which is really unknown. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, they, look, they were trying to tap into the singer-songwriter, yeah. Carole King era. Yeah. Uh, it didn't succeed. Yeah. You know, it wasn't for Motown, but it's a wonderful piece of music. Sadly, not on Spotify. <laughs> Is it? Oh, it wasn't when I last looked. Oh, good. Great. Oh, fine. Well, well done. Now I shall, right. I shall put that on my 1971 playlist, available on Spotify. Because uh, it's obviously, obviously only quite recently appeared there. So, Mick. I bet that's not on Spotify. Uh, that's, I haven't tried. It won't but, be. <laughs> uh, somebody, he's got the price sticker up the top right there. It's, uh, so, well, okay. uh, how do we say this? Dennis, Dennis Lindy. Lindy. Dennis Lindy. Lindy. This is the man who... The only thing I know about him is he wrote Burned in Love for that's, Elvis Presley. That's the only thing anybody knows right, about Right, OK. Him. But, but so, you're going to tell us a bit more, man. I'm going to tell you a bit more. Um, actually, that, this was an album I got, I bought, um, I think, again, Bargain. Bargain co-op. price. Not the co-op. <laughs> Probably cheapo, cheapo records. Oh in, right, okay. In Rupert Street, um, because by that, by this time, this is '69 or '70. Should know '70. Um, you know, I was buying stuff because it was on Electra, um, and um, I mean, the, the thing about Lindy is, he, you know, he was a he was a singer, <clears throat> a songwriter. I mean, as you say, "Burning Love" is the, the song most people know, and this album includes his has his version, his own version of "Burning Love," which sounds like Creedence Clearwater. It's absolutely brilliant. But uh, he's kind of like nothing else. Um, his, you know, he, he kind of nominally his country, but he also writes great pop songs. Um, and he's one of those artists that, as, as I'm sure we all did, there was a time when if you bought a record, you knew nothing about it, and it wasn't reviewed anywhere. The only way you could learn about anything was by looking at record sleeves. And... Increasingly, I was finding other albums that had Dennis Lindy songs yeah. on them or that he produced. I mean, he produced the first two Mickey Newbury albums on Electra, which are wonderful. Uh, you know, he... he you find the American it, trilogy. Including that, yeah. Um, and... Um, I'm not sure what else to say. It's, it's no, just, okay, uh, fine. You know, it's, just, it's just one of those... Is it on Spotify? Yeah. Okay. And no, it's, 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 just one <laughs> of those, it's just one of those records that once you discover it, then you just keep looking, and it's just. And, I mean, anything Lindy's ever been involved with, you know, Del McClinton records, Mickey Newbury records, Chris Christopherson records are brilliant. Right. Um, and 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 Burning Love was, I think, was the last great song that Elvis recorded. Oh, okay, okay. So that's <laughs> Dennis Lindy and Valerie Simpson. Your, uh, you know, your your cult classics that people like might like to check out, as they say on the radio. And here are the two gentlemen that we've been talking about. Yes. Barry Gordy is how eight, old today? 87. Eight, eight, 87 today. 87 today. Yeah. Jack Holtzman? Jack Holtzman would have been 86 about a month ago. Oh, OK. Right. So, right. so he, did, he died when? No, he's still alive. I was going to say, you yeah, said yeah. would have been. Oh, no, he, <laughs> oh, he would have, yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah. I thought... I thought Bad turn of phrase. <laughs> OK. So they, you know, they, they're both still working. Both still working. 
And then and Jack Holtzman, quite tech-savvy still, is Yeah, that? I mean, basically, I mean, the interesting thing with Holtzman is that when he left Electra in 73, which is where the, that was where the book ends, he basically left the music industry. And, you know, he, he had an extraordinarily successful business career. You know, he was like the managing director or CEO of Pioneer, Atari, um, a lot of companies. He became a businessman, largely work, but, but, but largely working for sort of tech-oriented companies. And he didn't come back into the music business until 91, when Warner's brought him back in as chief technologist. And, and I think he still has... I think they reappointed him last year. I mean, at the age of 75... <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah. Come and meet our chief technologist. <laughs> no, at the age it's of 75... elderly chap. When Warner started up uh, Cordless Records, which was their first digital label, they got Jack in to, to, to right. run it. Yeah. 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 Um, and um, he's still... God, he's, he's just still incredibly smart, incredibly sharp. Yeah, I mean, I, I found him, you know, an, an eloquent, insightful man. I talked to him for my book too because I was interested in, mm. how, you know, the, the parallels between mm. the two and what Jack Holtzman, whose company seems to be the antithesis of Motown, thought about Motown and the environment in which they, they both worked. And Jack said the one thing that he noticed that he thought was the smartest that Barry did was that 360 degree, that, that self-sufficiency, managing, publishing, recording the artist, everything self-contained. Um, and, and that was, he wasn't interested in doing that, but he, he, he respected Barry for that, that opportunity, taking that opportunity. Right. Um, and he also never, Jack never understood why Barry left Detroit. He said when he left Detroit, he, he left his roots. That was sort of the end. Yeah, more sunshine. Than the, yeah, but no, it's kind of interesting because Holtzman left New York for, for LA in 65 and 66. Um, and that's kind of where Electra took off because that's where he found love and the doors. But the interesting thing is he still kept the New York office. Mm -hmm. he, he never get, you know, and the two offices were, were very important. Even though the, the LA office became much more of a centre for Electra. You know, he never kind of left his roots behind, and mm. maybe that's the difference. Yeah, I think that probably is. Barry, you know, doesn't <laughs> didn't go back. Pretty much left left town big time. But it strikes me that it was the same reason that they, they you know, if, if if Jack left the music, music industry in '73, and that's that's when Barry, Barry Gordy was, I guess, moving away, moving towards well, movies. He was Hollywood, but um, big time in that. I mean, I, I think. Which I know was the case with Jack was he just needed more challenges and he just mm. felt, he just felt yeah. he'd, he'd achieved all his goals um, and wanted to move on yeah. and, and there was nothing in the, he could see nothing in the music industry in terms of as he saw it that, that challenged him but he wasn't drawn to film unlike no. Barry no well two remarkable men uh, two remarkable labels and two remarkable books ladies and gentlemen <laughs> would you please thank Mick Houghton and Adam White This podcast is brought to you by The Word. <laughs>